Fat was a good thing to be. In our currently obese state of prosperity, Americans and the rest of the developed world are desperate to get thinner, but our historical predecessors had no such familiarity with empty calorie bloating. Being fat was rare, and it was a symbol of power, health, prosperity, and even social status. Being fat meant that your family had invested well in you, and that you, in turn, were probably a good spousal investment. Add to this the second consideration, that whenever Buddhism arrived in a new place, it did not arrive into a religious vacuum. As a religion, Buddhism had to compete in the marketplace of other traditions. In Tibet, Buddhism appeared as an interloper in a region dominated by the native animistic religion, Bom. In China, Buddhism seemed like an upstart next to Taoism and Confucianism. In Japan, Shinto was already dominant and so on wherever the Dharma traveled. A fat Buddha image may have been a powerful marketing tool in gaining converts in new lands. This confusion of the fat Chinese Buddha versus the skinny Indian Buddha raises an important general distinction between the culture of Buddhism and the philosophy of Buddhism. Since first writing this book, I have traveled widely in the East, living for extended periods in Cambodia and China, but also spending time in Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam. It should come as no surprise that wherever I went, the Buddha statues in the temples looked remarkably like the locals, and the Buddhism itself looked almost like a different religion in the assorted countries. This is as it should be, because religions, like other cultural traditions, are supposed to help us with our local daily challenges. Buddhist rituals, for example, help people mourn the deaths of family members, celebrate weddings and births, bless new homes and businesses, and so on. Religious customs, then, are usually adapted to their unique and even geographical environments. Within a single country like Cambodia, I found many different kinds of Buddhism. Westerners who actually study Buddhism through books, and in some cases even come to call themselves Buddhists, are often shocked when they meet people from Buddhist countries who engage in elaborate rituals and beliefs, beliefs that look nothing like the Buddhism found in those Western books. At a Buddhist shrine in Vietnam, for example, I watched young couples offer six packs of beer and piles of photocopied money to the altar in hopes of securing an auspicious future wedding date. Or consider that in many Asian countries, more people know and love Guan Yin a derivative Buddhist saint or bodhisattva, than know about the historical Buddha Gautama. Or consider further the Western stereotype of Buddhism as a strictly pacifistic, docile, and submissive style compared to the mainstream views in many Asian countries of a powerful, ass-kicking kung fu version of Buddhism. In China, for example, Shaolin warriors are every bit as much a part of Buddhist culture as scrawny monks and the famous Buddhist folk story, known all over Asia, of the Monkey King, Sun Wukong, and his journey to the West, Shi Yoji, is filled with a masculine Buddhism that few Westerners would recognize. It's tempting for us to say, oh, that cultural stuff isn't real Buddhism, but it is. Philosophical Buddhism is the focus of this book, not because it's the real Buddhism, but because it's the seminal part of Buddhism, articulated by the man himself, and it's a part that currently lingers in obscurity. Roughly speaking, 
The philosophy of Buddhism can be found in the Four Noble Truths and the corollary ideas of a. the impermanence of all things, b. the interdependence of all things, and c. the doctrine of no self. When I point out throughout this book where Buddhist cultures or even later Buddhist schools conflict with the basic philosophical dharma, I do so not out of smugness, but out of a sense of professional obligation. That's what philosophers do. They look for intellectual inconsistencies. Ultimately, I believe in the philosophy of Buddhism, but I also love the cultures of Buddhism. I don't believe in it like a faithful person believes in a miracle. I believe in it because I've tested its psychological hypotheses and I've analyzed its metaphysical commitments. To my mind, the benefit of Buddhism for everybody, east and west, has to do with its approach to reach.